everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Squad Room, episode 440. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm an active duty patrol sergeant in Southern California. The Squad Room, if you haven't listened before, is about developing, optimizing, and maintaining the health and wellness of law enforcement officers all around the world. Actually, it does mean all around the world. We're in 66 countries now on this little show. Health and wellness mean a lot of things, and I try to explore it all here. How do we maintain and improve our mental health and our physical health? but also our emotional health and our mindfulness. The show is about my journey as a a guy, a dad, a 39-year-old male, but also a law enforcement officer trying to get healthier by evaluating my own life, by reaching out to experts to see what I can learn from them. I talk to other cops and doctors, Navy uh, and military leaders, uh, meditation experts, anybody who can be a force multiplier in my fitness. So Thanks for uh, joining me on the show. Before we get uh, too far into it, I want to, of course, address and thank sponsors of this episode who make this help help make this possible the sbtactical.com sb tactical guys are veterans they're uh, american made company uh, veteran owned and uh, they have the iCombat training system so go to sbtactical.com to check it out the iCombat training system is an active shooter training system it's a firearms qualification system that i know that if you've listened to the show before you've heard me talk about uh, but uh, it's a it's actually a really great system the beauty of the system is, of course, that there's no site prep and there's no ammo costs, and it's completely mobile. Uh, you can check out their Instagram uh, uh, page at SB Tactical for uh, some pictures of them just recently doing some active shooter scenario training with University of Santa Barbara Police Department, uh, uh, University, of Calif- University of California Santa Barbara Police, uh, doing some active shooter training on campus with this stuff. So... I mean, you, you imagine taking this stuff uh, to one of the most, like, crazy liberal um, anti... And I hate using the phrase crazy liberal, but, I mean, very adverse to law enforcement campuses out there, uh, at least on the West Coast, and they're able to plop down this firearms tra- active shooter training system in the middle of an active campus, and they're able to do that because um, it doesn't uh, have any ammo or simunitions, and there's no cleanup, and uh, any of those things. Uh, it's a replica system using a- replica ARs and replica Glock pistols, and think of it as a laser tag for cops. It's uh, pretty cool. You can check it out at aspytactical.com. Not only the UCSB Police Department uses it, but I've used it myself, and you can read about how uh, my first time using it on their blog, LAPD, Boston PD, SWAT, um, uh, Glendale PD, all sorts of other um, high-level agencies have used it. And if you're a part of your department's training cadre, just board with standing on that static line and shooting your five rounds into a paper target because budgets are thin, then check it out at sptactical.com. All right. So uh, if you may not have noticed, and if you're not listening to these in order, you're not, if you're getting caught up on the show, you probably don't notice that this one's a little behind, a couple days late. Apologies for anyone out there who's diehard, uh, all three of you. Hi, Mom. Uh, but, uh, we had a little, uh, some hiccups getting into the show or getting this show ready and then, uh, went on a family vacation, um, which I'm not terribly sure was a vacation. Um, one of those vacations where you, you need time off from, from the vacation really. Um, but anyway, we're back and uh, trying to dive into this. Today's a great episode. It's a short one, uh, aside from my babbling, but the interview is short anyway, and I'll get to, to get to that in a minute. Someone asked me the other day, uh, and I mentioned at the beginning of the show, that this show is kind of about my journey. And the first 20-ish episodes or so are definitely kind of geared more on me specifically and what's going on or, or using the using the lessons that were learned from the guests and from my discussions with Traver, 
my coach, uh, who uh, had played a big, big part in, in the first 15 episodes of the show, uh, and, and adapting some of those lessons uh, to my life and to my attempts to gain back my fitness. Uh, and you can listen to all those episodes to kind of catch up on all those on all what those things are. But I haven't done a, a recap episode in a while, and I think I've been putting it off because I didn't feel like I had a lot to say, but also putting it off because there's nothing, uh, there's not a lot of good news, honestly, or there's not a lot of a progress. Um, there's always good news, I guess, but there's not a lot of progress. In fact, there's been a lot of back steps. You've heard me talk on previous episodes about getting hurt, ended up in a cast, which shouldn't really have affected anything, uh, long term, but a whole confluence of events, let's say, it seemed to have put me back towards a near starting weight where I was when I started the podcast. Now, that's not entirely accurate because even though I was in a cast for six, five weeks and just out of the cast uh, now, about a month and a half, two months, I am still PRing lifts, squats, uh, deadlifts, and cleans and clean and jerk. Uh, much more uh, at a much higher rate. I'm still PRing those almost uh, monthly, and those PRs are double digit percentages from where they were uh, a little bit, you know, year, year and a half ago when I started the squad room. So some of that weight gain is muscle, and that's definitely felt and seen. However, I'm also uh, been enjoying my beer this summer, and I'm, I take you here's a little inside uh, peek behind the squad room. Is that I normally record these things in the middle of the day when the kids are out and are at school, and the, my wife is at work, and I have the place to myself, and I can talk freely, and uh, basically just make sure that I'm not interrupted. Uh, but I do them during the day so that I can have the family time at night. Well, this, like I said, is late because we were on vacation, and uh, I'm squeezing this one in now at uh, nine sixteen in the evening after the kids have gone to bed. My wife's doing a little work. I figured I'd jump out here and try and knock this out. So. Um, I don't know why I'm bringing all that up, but to, at least to say that I am enjoying a Alesmith IPA, uh, Alesmith out of San Diego for all my San Diego people who, this actually was where I was on vacation this week, learned that I have, uh, some followers down there who also like beer. So cheers everybody. It's uh, good stuff. If you follow me, you know that IPAs are my kryptonite and I've been enjoying suffering that kryptonite this summer. On top of uh, getting uh, scheduled on light duty, eight-day work week on a nine-hour shift, eight to five, which made working out interesting, uh, if not impossible. And I don't, I joke with my wife, I don't know how people do that anymore. I used to be a desk jockey and work an, uh, an eight to five kind of job Monday through Friday, and I ended that 11 years ago. And I don't know how people do anything these days or get any errands done or get any gym time in. I, I miss my 312s uh, desperately. So uh, back to that this week, though. I am back and cleared for full duty, and we'll be back at it this week. Of course, by the time I return to work, we are so short-staffed and so thin on recruitment that we have mandatory overtime. And so another challenge arises. But there's always a challenge that's always part of it. There's always something, always something going on that's going to to obstruct you. Those are some of the things that are obstructing me. I'm curious what uh, might be holding you back. Uh, I'd love to hear what you, what might be holding you back, what your obstructions are, what your obstacles are right now. What are the things you're trying to overcome? Um, shoot me an email at uh, garrett at the squadroom.net and let me know what your challenge is 
Um, I might pick a couple, read them on the show, maybe even get someone on to talk about it because it's good to know that other people out there are struggling with stuff too. Uh, I just wish I was one of those guys like, um, you know, uh, one of my favorite Instagram accounts, guy who's been a super strong supporter of, of this podcast since it started and just an awesome dude. His uh, Instagram handle is, and most every one of you probably know this, at Police Fitness and Nutrition. And um, awesome guy. But I'm just, I can't be him. Uh, which is, of course, silly because I can't be anybody but myself. And we n- none of us can. But what I mean is I don't seem to have that constant state of motivation and um, clarity and um, all those other things that, that he and many others people have. And, and um, you know, the stuff that he puts out, it, it's uh, police fitness nutrition um, is the, is the Instagram handle is awesome stuff. But I, I look at that and then it's almost an impossible uh, uh, goal for me to be that way. I don't know why I struggle more than other people do, but I, I do. And I know some of you guys do too, because I hear some of those things, when you do email me or do sh- uh, send me a, a direct message or something like that. So I love hearing those things because uh, we're all in this together and we're all partners. And that's the whole point of me even blabbing about all this stuff uh, on a podcast was to help other people because I know that I'm not the only one out there who struggles with this stuff. Uh, as I, I know that as a fact, and it's been confirmed over and over and over again over the course of the show. So uh, if it means me laying it all out there, and just being honest that I have struggled hard over the last four months with my diet. It's sucked. It has sucked. And uh, my focus and my energy and my excitement about working and all those things are just in the toilet right now. And that's not even getting into the stuff going on with cops right now with, you know, Dallas and Baton Rouge and now Milwaukee and the uh, um, the absurdity going around going on around our profession right now. That doesn't even... Uh, account for any of that that's just this is just a simple getting up and wanting to go to work right now is definitely uh at a low which you know gotta gotta find gotta find ways to do it and actually this episode is perfect timing because my guest on this show is that guy who is gonna help me get off my ass and and get back into the game um i met today's guest um through through a mutual friend his name is Scott Mann, but there's an important title before his name, and it's Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Scott is a recently retired Green Beret. He spent 18 years in the Green Berets, 23 years in the Army total, and he is an expert on ISIS and on working in what he calls trust-depleted environments. And we only had a short amount of time to, uh, for this episode to record, so we packed it in. It's one of my favorite interviews, honestly, of all the shows I've done, probably because I knew we had limited time, so I shut the hell up and just let Scott talk. And I was very direct on my questions, and I tried not to let my tongue get in the way of his knowledge. So you've probably seen him on Fox, maybe on CNN, maybe you've read his stuff in the Wall Street Journal. He's got a a book out there that I highly recommend called Game Changers. And it's about, uh, in a lot of ways, it's about defeating ISIS or extremism. But in a lot of ways, it's about how to bring leadership back to the United States. And it's a, it's a really good read. And he's got a lot of key um, key phrases or, or, or like um, trademark phrases that we go through in this interview. But as you listen to it, 
I, I try to tease out the the similarity between what he did in the Green Berets and, and what we do. And we got a little of that when we had Aaron Baruga, Aaron Baruga on the show a couple episodes ago, who was also Green Beret, and talked about how the Green Berets go into foreign environments and basically recruit native indigenous forces to fight on their behalf. And uh, that's a challenging thing to do, of course. But if you look at it in its relationship to policing, there's so many similarities that it's shocking and it's striking. And it makes so much sense to adapt and adopt some of the lessons that Scott is teaching and things we can learn from people like Scott. Because the difference between Chicago right now or Milwaukee right now, for example, the difference between the police there and their most hostile citizens is not that dissimilar from the Green Berets going on the ground and riding horses into Afghanistan and trying to build trust with these tribal leaders to get them on the same team and get them towards a same goal. And Scott uses the term rooftop leadership. He'll explain it in the show. But listen in the context of not only what he did with that, but how we do that or how we need to do that in law enforcement in general, but also for you supervisors out there, uh, the connection between how you should be doing that as a supervisor with your squad. And also for you line level guys, you're not off the hook either because so much of this is centered around the idea, the important idea, an idea that I believe wholeheartedly that by definition, by the oath of office that we took, we are all leaders. Anyone listening to the show who's in law enforcement, who wants to be in law enforcement, you are a leader. You're a leader in your community. You're a leader in your department. And you're a leader to the people that know you. Your friends, even to your friends, you're a leader. And you might not want to be, but tough, you are. You are expected to be that leader. And it's it's important that that not be assumed to be just the case for supervisors, for sergeants and lieutenants only. No, this is for any officer that puts on a vest, puts on a badge, puts on a gun every day, whether you're on duty or off duty, you're a leader and you should be acting accordingly and you should carry that burden with grace and honor and dignity. It shouldn't be a burden really at all. It should be a gift. That's the way I look at it is that this honor that I've been given this ability to lead by definition of who I am, by what I do, I am a leader in my community. People look to me for answers. If that's if you ever need proof of that, ask yourself if anyone has ever come to you off duty, out of uniform, just knowing that you're a cop, come to you with an issue or a problem or a question and they want to know what you would do. Well, guess what? That means that you are a leader. That means that you are seen as a leader in your community. You need to embrace that. You need to move that forward, and that is how we are going to turn this tide, is that we act as leaders on duty and off duty, whether line level or a supervisor, you are a leader, and you can be a, 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 a fantastic leader as a line level officer as much as you are as a supervisor. Line level guys have as much influence, if not more, in uh, the in the public's perception of us than in anybody else. And your ability to lead by example, by providing great service, by providing honorable service to the community, you lead, you show them the way, you show them the path forward, you show them what we're capable of, and you guys are going to be the one that helped turn the tide 
and help us get this ship turned around so that we can go to work with some relative feeling of safety, feeling of support in 3, 5, 10, 15 years from now. It's really going to be the line-level guys and the frontline supervisors who are going to make this change possible. It's not going to be the chiefs. They're going to be gone in three years. It's not going to be the commanders, the captains who put in all the special bike patrols and all that sort of stuff. No, it is going to be the individual officer that decides to lead day in and day out, in uniform and out of uniform. Those are the guys that are going to get us where we need to go. And I know that many of you already listening to this are those people. So listen to Scott. Listen to him talk about the in-groups and out-groups, how he defines these two different people. Listen to that in the context not only of him talking about the Green Berets and the Taliban, but also in your department, in your squad, between you and the public, uh, all of those things. He talks about trust-depleted environments, same thing. It's a fascinating idea, and it'll turn your head over when you start thinking of what he's talking about, not just in the context of fighting ISIS or the Taliban, but how we can apply some of these things to uh, the public how we can apply these things to interagency conflicts and interagency relationships, and then also within inter-squad or inter-platoon dynamics. Really good stuff. He's an awesome guy. He was super helpful. I'm lucky enough to actually get to see him and meet him in person this weekend, uh, where I will be with him and Trey Verboom and many other people at a TEDx talk, and I'm very excited to see them. It'll be a good time. So for now, without much further ado, after 17 minutes and 50 minutes of me rambling, let's get to Scott Mann, Lieutenant Colonel of the Green Berets, author of Game Changers, and uh, the man behind Rooftop Leadership. Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, former uh, Green Beret Special Forces, author, uh, news analyst, probably seen him on TV at some point, uh, speaker, trainer. Am I missing anything, uh, Lieutenant Colonel? Uh Country boy, Country redneck. Boy. <laughs> redneck. All right, cool. Well, welcome to the squad room. Thanks for being here. We have a mutual friend that said that we needed to uh, we needed to meet, and uh, I'm glad she did because I started digging into your own podcast, The Man Up Report. Right. And we'll put those links to your show and our show notes so that people can check that out. Cool. You have um, a lot of stuff going on right now, but one of the things that you do is you you now that you are retired from the Green Berets. You train law enforcement, local, state, federal law enforcement. What is it that you teach law enforcement? Yeah, so, well, thanks for having me on, Garrett. And uh, just let me say, I, it's so cool to meet someone who's doing something as similar um, and is as passionate about, you know, this in the law enforcement world as I am uh, with the military and special ops world and veteran world. And I, it's just it's crazy how that kind of stuff happens. But yeah. I have a sense that we'll probably cover a lot of ground here. But But what I teach law enforcement – uh, is actually uh, well, it's a couple areas, but what it really gets to is the 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 aspects of um, of what's going on in the human terrain uh, here in our country that affects communities, law enforcement. Um, I, we look at ways to restore trust between law enforcement and communities, um, and then I also talk a lot about tribal dynamics, violent extremism, again you know, things that are making their way here in very prominent ways that are very similar to what I've experienced overseas as a Green Beret. You know, we're community-based people. Green Berets are. We're very different than SEALs and, and others. So in a lot of ways, Garrett, we when we are abroad working in rough places like, you know, rural Afghanistan, tribal Iraq, uh, it looks a lot like the place-based policing and community-based policing that you guys obviously are so good at so it's just a, it's just an opportunity to share 
best practices on what we've seen in these rough places that, frankly, is either on its way here or already here. You know, that's something, um, I've, I've, as I learn more about Green Berets, we had a, a, a Green Beret sergeant on a couple episodes prior to you talking about marksmanship and firearms and such. But the more I learn about the Green Berets and your specific mission of going in and working with indigenous and local cultures and uh, and, and doing those things, that, that parallel to community policing completely struck me as being absolutely appropriate um, for what what the trend is is really moving in law enforcement. Um, you speak about and a lot of your a lot of the themes of your work is leadership. Yeah, and you talk a lot about the importance of leadership and that there's an absence of leadership in the U.S. And I want you to dig in a little bit to what you mean by that, but also where is law enforcement's law enforcement's role in leadership in the U.S. Well, I just gave a talk, and I, t- I talked to law enforcement all over the country, and you're, you're right. There are so many corollaries between uh, what Green Berets do at the community level and, and law enforcement around the country. And, and I, you know, it, I wasn't looking for that, man. It just kind of started. Uh, when I wrote the book Game Changers, um, I profiled one little town of Salinas, California, um, Chief Kelly McMillan in that book, and it just took off. And so now I find myself going all over the country talking to, to police officers and sheriffs. And um, But when I talk about you know the role that law enforcement – I was just up in uh, Syracuse, New York, and I was talking to a group of state troopers and federal law enforcement, and I told them, I said, listen, there has never in the history of our country been a more epic erosion of trust at the community level between members of the community and – between members of the community and their government and the police than what we have today. It's, it is unprecedented. And, and I, you know, as Green Berets, we're kind of like anthropologists with guns. We study societal trends because we have to. We work in and amongst the people. So um, as I look at the, you know, these, these, these metrics of stability, um, one thing that's right below the waterline, Derek, that no one's paying attention to is the erosion of trust and trust, you know, understand in our society, I think police officers probably know this better than most. It is an, it is a secret sauce of what makes that American flag wave proudly behind you. Uh, we, we have a level of trust in this country that most countries do not have. Um, and so what I believe the role of police officers is going to be in the now and in the future. Look, this is not an easy time to be a police officer, but um, police officers are going to find themselves as the catalysts who are going to have to go into places that are demonstrating tribal behavior, violent, conflict-riddled, trust erosion behavior, and they're going to have to restore trust and then lead from that place, and it is not going to be easy. No, I, I can't agree with you more, and I, I, the divisiveness that I, that I see occurring is, is scary and disheartening, and um, that could be a whole other podcast. Mm. What are the – that could be a whole podcast, like its own – in content, um, yeah. not just an it, episode. It's a whole course that I teach for you know a half a day I, on trust restoration. Like a lot of law enforcement, when I talk to them about um, what's going on with the erosion of trust, and I'm happy to come on and talk about it. It's you know their jaws hit the ground not because they're surprised, but when you name it and you frame it the way that I put it out there, it's like oh my god. So I, this isn't just where I'm working. This is across the country, and when you get that cognizant realization that this is not some anomaly in one person's neighborhood. This is, you know, this is across the country and you get a sense of how just epic this is. And we are at the, man, I tell you, we are at a crossroads right now. And so, yeah, it is definitely its own episode. 
Yeah. So how do um, how do you recommend that the I mean a lot of the stuff that they talk about or that that we're talking about is that you know kind of on an agency level and mm-hmm. it's a directive from the agency down. I mean, you were a lieutenant colonel, you gave the orders, and someone went forth and executed on your orders. But what is it about the individual officer, the individual cop who's listening to this now, that what they can do to participate in this um, without the need for orders from above? Yeah, that's a great question, man. And, you know, the whole theme of my book, Garrett, Game Changers, the subtitle is Going Local to Defeat Violent Extremists. And what I learned in 23 years of, of you know, Army work, special ops, special forces work around the globe from Colombia to Ecuador to Iraq to Afghanistan is that all things that matter in life are local. You know, I mean, strategy, policy, you got to have it. But, you know, I watched over and over again these policy wonks and politicians and generals and admirals project top down, whether it was security, whether it was economic development, whether it was job programs, whether it was governance, anything in this day and age that is projected from the top down is generally not going to be effective. It's just not. So when I'm talking to a local law enforcement officer, what I tell them is, listen, you know, uh, trust is going to be restored one citizen at a time. Uh, A community can be turned around. It can. You can restore trust in a community. And when one community collectively reestablishes a measure of trust with itself and with its law enforcement, it is contagious. Um, It will not. The only time in history we've ever faced this as a nation was in the early 1900s, shortly after the Industrial Revolution. And guess what? The longest running period of social capital, of trust restoration in our history from 1910 to 1972 started from the bottom up. Local law enforcement, local businessmen standing up and saying, you know what, nobody's coming, I'll start. And so uh, my message to law enforcement is, you know, old school policing, old school community policing. Well, guess what? It's new school again. And, And it is the most relevant form of leadership and trust restoration in the world. And if you're good at it, great. If you get better at it. If you're not doing it and you'd rather dress like Chris Kyle on SEAL Team 6, you might want to look at a, a different approach for the future. Yeah. Okay. So um, you talk. You have a phrase, bottom-up leadership. Is that what you're saying when you when you say that? Is that, you know, the, the very basic um, line-level officer has the ability and the, and the obligation, really, uh, to participate in this? Absolutely. Bottom-up simply means... Uh, informal, right? If you look at our society, and law enforcement knows this better than anybody, um, you you have really kind of two worlds in our in our society. You have what they call status or contract society, and that's where you have like formal government, federal, state, even local. That's contract society, rule of law, transactions, um, you know, uh, PowerPoint. <laughs> Um, sound bites. It's everything that's transactional about our society. Mm-hmm. Then you have anywhere in the world and in the United States, you have what's called status or clan society. That's the informal community, neighborhood society, especially in many of the inner cities and marginalized communities where disputes are resolved informally. Security is provided informally. I mean, there's just these clan-like dynamics that are reality. You know, and and even like where I come from in Appalachia, you know, it has its own rule set. It's informal. And yes, law enforcement officers, they represent the catalyst between 
informal society, right? Communities and neighborhoods and clans and and then and then the, and then formal the government, local, state, federal, rule of law. They are the catalyst between those two worlds. They have a foot above the waterline, a foot below the waterline. Trust is always restored from the bottom, not the top. Trust is restored one. It's in this way we're biologically designed. One human connection at a time, and so. Law enforcement are not only important to this, they are at the epicenter of this. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, as we move into the next decade, I, you know, cops already have so much put on their plate and the expectation yeah. that they are the social worker, the marriage counselor, the mm. child psychologist, the trash man, everything of those. On top of that, we have this coming down the pike, but it seems like it's inevitable, but it's an obligation that we need to accept in one way or another. Yeah, I think so, Garrett. I mean, and, and the only reason I'm saying that is, look, I'm indifferent in terms of who does it. Uh, by that, I mean, you know, in, in abroad, you know, it's kind of like um, you have Navy SEALs, you know, Delta Rangers. You know, we have a whole host of, of folks and a lot. You know what? Half the guys in special forces, you know, we're kind of a combination of Jason Bourne, Lawrence of Arabia and the Verizon guy, <laughs> um, you know, but. Um, half of the guys, especially the young guys in our ranks, what they would really like to do is put their body armor on and their knee pads and their Velcro kit up and just go thump bad guys, right? That's what we've kind of evolved into. But the reality is there's a lot of organizations that do that the same way you guys have SWAT teams that go do that. You know, you have, you know, elements that are designed for that. But the reality is that does not in a singular approach that doesn't solve the, the issue. It never will. Um, the fact of the matter is that it, the same way that special forces abroad, we have to work with tribes and villages that are you know, pissed off at the government. We have to connect with them and help them get back on their feet. I think law enforcement are in exactly the same spot. It, the societal conditions are exactly the same. It's just here at home. It's law enforcement abroad. It's special forces. Yeah, it's, uh, it all kind of comes, comes to that. And you talk about um – storytelling as being an important aspect of anyone's uh, war kit, their war bag for us. Uh, how, what, what is that? Why is that important, do you think? And then is, is it really on, again, an agency level or on an individual officer level where storytelling can really make a connection? Well, what, you know, I, I teach what I'm talking about to you guys and, and what is in my book. And I mean, I still teach this to Green Berets at the qualification course. So like, the, I'm the first guy that gets in front of these captains on their two-year pipeline, and, and what I teach them are what I call the Lawrencean skills, the Lawrence of Arabia type skills. You know, Lawrence of Arabia was a, a British officer, intelligence officer in 1917 who went in behind enemy lines in, in World War One, mobilized, you know, nomadic tribesmen in Iraq and Syria to stand up against the Ottoman Empire, and one dude basically co-opted an entire, you know, tribal nation to fight back from the bottom up and defeat the Ottoman Empire. Huge economy of force. and But those skills that he used are the same skills that Green Berets use and, frankly, a lot of your old school police officers use. And it's things like – because you have to understand as humans, Garrett, we are designed to be social creatures. We're hardwired that way. Even our biological reward systems of oxytocin and serotonin, you know, they reward social behavior, right? So status behavior – um, revenge, feud, all of those are aspects of social behavior. So story, if you want to connect with people in a neighborhood, if you want to go in and, and, and bring people over to your side, 
whether it's a tribe in Afghanistan or, you know, a neighborhood in New York, um, story is the oldest form of human communication in the world, in the world. It is universal. We've been telling stories for a hundred thousand years as humans, and we've only been speaking language for 10,000 story. A language was actually invented as a better means to communicate story. So, you know, if you're a, if you know how to tell a story, it, what it does is it, it, because it can, it contains information in a delivery vehicle that hits the limbic part of the brain, emotion. Um, and, and that is, it's retained more, it's acted on more. It's just better than facts and figures and rule books. It's storytelling is always more effective. Most people, most police officers I've worked with, they instinctively know this. The question is, how good are you at it? So, you know, I train it. I think it is essential. It is an essential law enforcement skill, especially in this day and age. If you're going to wade into a nasty area and restore trust, storytelling will be an essential part of your kit bag. That's interesting. I, I We often... Uh, my experience, we often tell stories on an individual level on a, you know, on a call for service and we're dealing yeah. with someone and we're trying to get, put something in perspective for them, but, uh, we miss opportunities. It seems on a bigger level, uh, talking to groups or, oh. or, um, at an agency level, we, we miss those opportunities to, to tell the story that we're trying to get out. And, and it seems like we're getting better. Social media is certainly helping, right. I think with, uh, agencies being able to share their side of the story, uh, and not be held to someone else's, you know, decision on what the narrative is. Um, but we got to get be- we got to get better storytellers. What um, there's a lot of I could guess we could go into a whole lot of questions about storytelling and what what tools and tips. But we'll save that for another time. Maybe I wanted to shift gears a little bit to more about what some of the insights you've learned specifically and what are the things that we can, uh, can bring back. We do, this is, you know, leadership is a common topic on this, on this podcast. It's a personal interest of mine and getting better at it. So I always enjoy asking people who've been there and done that, the things and lessons that they've learned and what they can glean. So one thing that's been on my mind, um, recently is, um, you know, as, as you moved up through the ranks, um, I imagine, and I know it's easy to become isolated from criticism, the more and more, the higher you go, the farther you away you get from the front line. Um, and it's the same for, for us, it's the same as moving from a deputy to a sergeant like I am now. Um, and it's very alluring. It's very enticing to be, to do that, to get away from the self reflection and the criticism. Um, I guess my question is what tactics or methods or practices did you use, um, to maintain objectivity about your own strengths and weaknesses? Oh yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, my dad, uh, one of the greatest leaders I've ever known. He was a firefighter for the Forest Service. He taught me, you know, multiple tactics for this. But the one thing he taught me that I believe every uh, practitioner in law enforcement and special ops can use is a thing he called leaving tracks. And what my dad taught me was that, and this was when he was battling with cancer was when I saw this most pronounced, was he always said, he was a woodsman, so he was a forester. He would take us out in the woods and he would show us a set of tracks. My brother and me, he would say, look at that, boys. You see that right there? Those those tracks that are in the earth, that's what I want you for your life. I don't care what you do for a living. I don't care who you marry. I don't care where you live. I want you to leave tracks in this world. And he defined tracks as those indelible impressions in the earth that serve not those around us, but those who follow us. You know, that if you think about it from a leadership perspective, that's a very difficult thing to do because you don't get that ego feeding feeling of serving those around you. It's like people you never even met, like, right. you know, impacts that, that happen after you're gone. 
And, you know, he would always tell us, look, you should always be circling back and looking at the tracks that you're leaving. Am I leaving the tracks I'm supposed to leave? And leadership comes from that. Leadership comes from, and the best leaders I ever saw in combat, whether they were colonels or sergeants or Marines or whatever, they were always guys who were fully aware of the tracks they were here to leave on this earth or the you know, true north on their inner compass or their higher purpose. I just believe that if we can stay focused on that and if we get away from that, come back to it, that will keep us honest. It will, it will never allow us to forget where we came from, and it will always have us leading from a place of service no matter what level we get to because we realize that we're just a vessel. We're just here to do something bigger than us. And when we start taking ourselves, you know, reading our own press and believing it, that means we've gotten away from the tracks we're leaving. So for me, it's just that simple. I teach that in leadership at my men's retreat down here in Florida. That's the first thing we do for half a day is just get clear on what tracks are you leaving in this world. And if you don't know that, how the hell is anybody going to follow you in the first place? Sure. Yeah. So um, Green Berets, obviously your main, your primary mission, as we mentioned earlier, is recruiting and, and um, recruiting these local indigenous people to, to kind of join the fight on their own behalf. Yeah. Right. Um but that recruitment, that's a, that's got, that is a dynamic uh, event, of course, going into a very hostile territory. How, what are some of the things you learned through that process that you bring back or that we can bring back to law enforcement to recruit the best people, both not only to the profession as a whole and bringing the best people in to do this job that's very challenging and very dynamic? Because we need the best people. We got to have them in order for this to work. Um but also at the like at the squad level or at the first line supervisor level, how do you recruit those people to be, to to join your team within the team? Does that make sense? Yeah, the most talented people, um, in my opinion, who have the most to offer to the kind of work that you and I do for a living, are never easy to find. They're always below the waterline. Always, there's always a story attached to them that requires you to dig a little bit. Uh, if you take if you know if the persons that if your bulk of your recruiting are the easy to find people through HR and recruiting posters, you should be afraid uh, because you're getting people that, frankly, I, you know, I don't want them. I mean, some of them, maybe I want the guy or the gal who's got some miles and some scars, right? I, you know, I, I need a story that helps me find them. Usain Bolt, you know, nobody knew this guy could run. It was just a, his coach that, that picked him up, had a hunch. There was, there was something about this kid's fire, you know, and I just believe that the best, warriors the best law enforcement practitioners are just below the surface and you know even surveys have shown that the most talented professionals in the world over 50 percent of them are glossed over by hr thin slicing it's always the people that are below the surface and you find them through storytelling active listening and just being dialed in and being intentional to what's going on around you and looking deeper and don't just thin slice with people and assume that what you see is what you get. I like that. Good advice. Um, want to uh, touch on a couple of uh, phrases you use often. Um, one is is the title of a summit that you that you run, but called Rooftop Leadership. Uh-huh. Um, w- explain to people what you mean by that and, and how that applies. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've adopted that. It's just like the centerpiece of my leadership. And what it really stems from is in my book, you know, we did a it started with six villages and we went to 113 where we w- moved back out into these communities, very similar to community based policing 10 years into the war and basically had to move into these communities. We lived in there. 
for months, if not years at a time, little 12-man teams. And the whole purpose was to help villagers fight back against the Taliban, kind of like the old Magnificent Seven movie with Yul Brenner that Denzel Washington is going to remake um, you know, this year. And, and it, 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 you know, this was a hard thing to do because you're facing a trust-depleted society. There's conflict. There's feud between themselves and with us because of 10 years of manhunting in this area that, frankly, you know, kind of made us an outgroup to them. So you've got to convince them to allow you to move into the community. And then once you do that, you got to inspire them to go up to, you know, to fight. And the way that our guys did that every single time is that they would go up on the rooftops of the building they were living in that village whenever the Taliban attacks would come after they moved in. And they would always come within 48 or 72 hours. And, you know, nobody else would go to the roof uh, except our team. That 12-man team would go up there and fight, and sometimes they'd get busted up, sometimes killed, but they'd go anyway, even though no villagers followed them. And I just started watching that, and, I, you know, every village I would go to and watch this, and it just started to resonate with me that in a trust-depleted environment, that's what leadership looks like. It's the ability to first to connect and, and, and to, you know, establish empathy enough that you get into the community and that's not, but it doesn't stop there. Then you work to restore the, the trust and build the relationship over time. And you have to be willing to go up on the rooftop and face adversity, even if the people you're trying to lead don't follow you in the beginning, because they won't, because they're, you know, they're caught in all manner of inescapable shock and trauma and apathy and all the other crap that our society is going through today. Um, you just have to have enough belief in what you're doing that eventually they'll believe in themselves enough to follow you. And every single village we did that in Garrett within, you know, 45 to 60 days of us doing that and getting bloodied on the rooftops, one little peasant farmer would go up there and start shooting and then you'd have five and then 10 and then the whole community doing, guess what? Exactly what they had done for centuries. It wasn't new. It's just creating the space through leadership and action and deed uh, you know, and authenticity for them to, to step into it and do what they do. So that's what I call rooftop leadership. And I believe not, I know that that can, we, that's the kind of leadership we need in America today. It's what I teach law enforcement. It's what I teach my kids. It's what I teach civilian businessmen is, is, is a form of authentic leadership that, re, that connects, restores trust, and then leads from a place of service by example. I like that. And I think that's a great spot, uh, to end on, I know you got to run real quickly. Where can people find out more about you, Scott? We're kind of all over the place, but I would love them to go to scottman.com uh, just to kind of learn about what I'm doing. Or you can go to my Facebook page. It's the official Scottman Facebook page. There's a lot of good content there. I'd love it if they subscribe to my Man Up Report podcast. That's Man Up Report with two N's. Um, and then, um, if they're interested in like violent extremism and things like this, there's also a website called manupreport.com, manupreport.com. And they can go and see all of the different, you know, news analysis and things like that, that I've done that we've repurposed if they want info on ISIS. Um, and then the book game changers, Garrett, I think would serve them game, the game changers book.com or any of my websites. It's for sale. All the proceeds, 100% of the author's proceeds go back to helping our warriors transition um, and just spending the time with you that I have, there's so much I can see that we ought to talk about it. And, and even like, you know, law enforcement transition and dealing with PTS and, you know, just the stress that goes with law enforcement. We've, we've both run such similar paths. Um, I think it would be great to swap best practices and resources and, you know, maybe even dedicate some time to that 
Um, I just attended a law enforcement course on suicide prevention and post-traumatic stress that's better than anything I've seen in the military, and I'd love to pass that resource to you. Um, so a lot to chat about, man. Yeah, no, we'll we'll do this again for sure, and we'll get you back on. I, I could go uh, down uh, a dozen rabbit holes just off of what we just talked about there, so we'll yeah. pick a couple and we'll go down them next time. Uh, Scott Mann, uh, former uh, retired, not for <laughs> retired Lieutenant Colonel Green Bray Special Forces. Thanks for being with us. All the links for everything we talked about, all your books, your websites, everything. I'm going to put that in the show notes so people can go to the squadroom.net and uh, look up this episode and they'll find all of that information there if they're uh, running around listening to this in their, in their ears instead of uh, at a computer so they can uh, check out those resources. They're excellent. I highly recommend everyone subscribe to your podcast too because there's a lot of light bulbs that go off when you listen to that. So yeah. appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us and look forward to another conversation. Thanks so much, Gary. All right, Scott Mann, Lieutenant Colonel Green Berets, uh, excellent interview. Hope you enjoyed that. I want to thank SB Tactical and the iCombat Active Shooter Training System. You can check out their training system just specifically for law enforcement at sbtactical.com. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at The Squad Room. And Scott's uh, information, Scott is the Man Up Report podcast. Highly recommend you check that out for all sorts of great stuff on leadership, on ISIS, on fatherhood, on all sorts of stuff. Excuse me. That Ailsmith is still working its way through me. Uh, his uh, his uh, website is manupreport.com. The podcast is Man Up Report. Make sure you subscribe to that after you're already, of course, subscribed to ours. And he's the author of Game Changers. Uh, and you can get that on Amazon. And we will have all these inf- all this information in the show notes for the show. So uh, if you want to sign up for our mailing list, you can go to thesquadroom.net, sign up right there. Or you can text the squadroom, all one word, to 44222. And you can get signed up from your phone right there in the palm of your hand. Squadroom.net uh, for this episode and for all the other, other, other episodes. If you want to look at our archive, that's where you can find all of that. And until next time, please take care of each other and stay safe.